Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. I take a lot of liberty with the stuff that's done in the books. I don't try to Tom Clancy it to death with research. I do most of the research just through reading articles and Google. At any given moment, I'll have a bookmarked folder with a couple hundred articles that I've read on various topics. I voraciously devour anything that comes across my desk. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 159 of Passion Struck, recently ranked by Feedspot as one of the top 50 most inspirational podcasts in the world. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show or you would just like to send this to a friend or family member, we now have episode starter packs. These are collections both on Spotify and the Passion Struck website of our fans' favorite episodes that we organized by topic to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. In case you missed our episode from earlier in the week, I had the honor and privilege of interviewing Vice Admiral Sandy Stowes, who spent over 40 years in the Coast Guard and eventually became the first female superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy, making her the first female to ever lead the United States Service Academy. And she and I go through a masterclass on leadership all around her book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Katie Milkman, who is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, co-director of the Behavioral Change for Good Initiative, and host of the popular Choiceology podcast. And we talk all things behavioral science and what you'd need to know to go from where you are to where you want to be in life. I also interviewed Elise Michaels, who is a men's mental health coach, and we discuss all things mental health along with her four pillars of peak performance for men. If you liked any of these episodes, we would so appreciate it if you gave us a five-star rating and review. They go such a long way in helping to promote this podcast and its popularity. Now, let's talk about today's guest. Stephen Conkley is a Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and repeat Amazon number one bestseller of over 20 thriller novels. Stephen graduated with me, actually, from the U.S. Naval Academy, where he received a Bachelor's of Science degree in English Literature. He served the next eight years on active duty as a naval officer assigned to various Navy and Marine Corps commands. His extensive journey spanned the globe, including a two-year tour in Japan and travel to more than 20 countries throughout Asia and the Middle East. We discuss our time attending the Naval Academy together and some of his favorite experiences, his path after graduating, which took him to Navy SEAL BUDS training, to then his time on ships and eventually working with the Marine Corps. We discuss how he discovered his passion to become a writer and the steps he took to make that dream become a reality. He goes over some of his tips for aspiring writers, especially some of his daily writing habits and so much more. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let the journey begin. Thank you. 
so ecstatic to welcome my friend, Steve Conkley, to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Steve. Hey, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, so it's great to finally have you on the podcast, and I'm real excited for the audience to get to know you. And speaking of knowing you, I learned something listening to other podcast episodes that I didn't know about you, and that is, as a Naval Academy graduate, you first wanted to go to West Point. How could you make such a terrible decision? Yeah, that is true. I'm not going to deny that. I wish I didn't realize that uh, video evidence was still out there. But um, yeah, I was kind of more of kind of that land warfare, Tom Clancy, big Tom Clancy reader, fell in love with the, the big, the concept of tank battles, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I applied to West Point, um, received the nomination for this Klosky. I think he's still in office if, if he hasn't just left. He's been around a long time. He had an extra appointment to Annapolis, which frankly, I hadn't even considered. The main reason being it was more competitive, to be quite honest. I, you know, good grades and everything, barely enough to get in, but I actually wasn't certain I would get in. So I just, I kind of focused all my effort toward uh, West Point. And ironically, uh, I was never offered an appointment to West Point. I was offered the Annapolis appointment. So it really worked out kind of it was worked out well because I was on the cusp of saying, I hate to take an appointment. I'd hate to take a nomination. If I really don't have any intention of using it, but no one, it was mine for the taking. So um, it worked out. Well, here in the Tampa area, we have a very active alumni association. And given we have both CENTCOM and SOCOM here, you get a lot of military participation. But we just had our annual picnic where rising juniors or actually younger than that come to this picnic to kind of learn more about the Naval Academy and the entrance process. And I always fail to realize that congressmen and senators only have five nominations at any given point. It is, as you're saying, a very competitive thing. Sure. Very, very. And yeah, I mean, like I said, I was balancing being polite and parents are like, you're out of your mind if you don't take both of these because you just, you just never know. But yeah. Well, do you have a favorite memory from the time we were both at the Naval Academy? You know how it is. It's such a complex uh, place. I would say my overall um, experience there was fantastic. It was very difficult at times frustrating. There were in moments in the beginning and not any further past like plebe summer, you know, where you're thinking like, did I, did I make a serious mistake? I remember the first night we were all sworn in and we're heading back to our, uh, heading back to our halls or passageway where you lived and all I could hear was screaming inside, yelling. And, and I knew that it's not like I, we didn't know it was coming, but I remember thinking, looking at a couple of guys, we just started laughing. We're like, why don't we just linger around <laughs> to come to court a little longer? <laughs> why rush to go into what is going to be a very long journey? But in terms of like specific memories, I always enjoy the summers because you know, we got to do stuff in the fleet. I took one period, one summer period off the entire time. I constantly kept busy. I did uh, Bulldog OCS early because I wanted to see if the Marine Corps was right. And uh, then our final summer, I had all three uh, blocks booked straight. So um yeah, I always look forward to the summers, just getting out and about. Yeah, <laughs> so you're probably like, so you're saying you don't like the Naval Academy? Um, the uh, Army-Navy game is always a highlight. You know, commissioning week, there was just, there was always just something going on. Even in the darkest of times, there was, you always had people around you and there was stuff. There was always something to do, keep you busy, keep you out of trouble or in trouble, depending on how you approached it. Well, speaking of summers, during 
between our youngster and second class. So for those who didn't go to the academy sophomore and junior years, I decided to get ahead because junior year taking all these higher engineering courses. And so I decided to take summer school and to try to knock out two courses, one of which was electrical engineering. And I will tell you, trying to do electrical engineering over a month period, I think I got a C in it. And I'm not sure while I was going through it, I was just going, oh my God, I'm out of my mind. (laughs) Right. So I was hoping you weren't going to say electrical engineering because that'd be crazy. Did you do both semesters? Did you knock out the whole No, I knocked out the first semester. And in hindsight, it was a terrible decision because by the time I got to the second semester, I'd pretty much forgotten everything I'd learned in the first semester because I'd taken it during the summer. Another thing I found out is that you and I both had the same service selection desire, which was to go into special warfare. And unfortunately for me, I got medically disqualified because of some health issues. You actually got to go to BUDS. What was that experience like? Talking about having medical issues, I didn't have a great run of it. I, um, I showed up early in the summer with a couple guys. We decided to forego the uh, basket leave for most of it and uh, get out there and just kind of jump right in. It was everything it was cracked up to be, everything we expected. I developed like very persistent uh, shin splints and then stress fractures that I, I just couldn't, I couldn't shake. I mean, I, I classed up with three different classes over a period of time spent a lot of time in the, uh, what they called fourth phase back then. It's a grind, not in a, um, a typical buds who way. It's, it's the, you know, it's kind of, you build you up from the beginning. I did that over and over again after one particular time when this fracture, I mean, it was a hairline fracture and they just kept me out for quite a while. It was a pretty big letdown at the time. Um, you know, looking back at it now, I wouldn't do it any other way. Um, I spent a year there trying to get into a class it just never worked. Every time it, they, they gave me enough time, but not enough time to fully heal up. You can't walk around in a cast with a stress fracture. It's probably the best way to heal, but it's not, it's not the way they're doing it. They do it there. So about a year after that, I transferred to a frigate out of Japan. It was a, my choice was a carrier in Norfolk or a frigate out of Japan. So there wasn't a lot of choice there. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a lot of David Goggins interviews and I think he was on his last try at Bud's and they said either you get through your physical ailments or you're out. And he basically disguised all this incredible pain he was going through. But given what they throw at you, it is a huge challenge. And from someone who had to stop running because of repeated stress fractures, I totally get it because they absolutely ache. You look at guys, I remember, so let's bring up another pretty well-known classmate, Chris Cassidy, these guys. I was in the class with him briefly, and these guys are like gazelles, and I've always been kind of like, I probably would have been far better off in the Marine Corps as a true kind of just grunt, ground-pounding type, because I just wasn't a very fast runner. So you add that to a lot of discomfort, and just the knowledge that I'm not going to get cleared to go through Hell Week. I was not cleared the first time. It just wasn't and the instructors knew it too. And they were cool about it as cool as the instructors could be. They'd pull me aside and say, look, come Monday when first phase starts, there's not going to be any favorite. We're not, we, we can't play favorites. We can't help you along. You've been here. You've been in the program in the training program a long time. Um, they all, I mean, I knew them all. I saw them out in town, out in Pacific beach at bars and hanging out. I'd kind of come to know a lot of them. And, but at the same time, they were very clear, like, Fourth phase is one thing. Once we hit uh, first phase on Monday, all bets are off. If you can't keep up, 
you can't keep up. So. No, I get it. But then ironically, you and I both ended up spending time with special forces in very unusual ways. I mean, myself as a cryptologist, you would have never thought that that would happen, but I happened to be based in Spain and orders came down from the NSA that they were looking to start a cadre and to partner with SEALs so that we could give them high oversight for their missions and also intelligence coverage. And so I was asked to form a a team of eight to 10 people, spent the rest of my tour with Naval Special Warfare Unit 10 and ended up uh, going on short deployments with Team 10 and Team 8. I know in your case, you ended up spending a lot of time with the Marine Corps. It was very clear. I had a great time at sea, two years on a frigate. It's definitely everything the surface warfare, the surface warfare name lived up to. Pretty rough. It's a hard life. It's definitely the op tempo out of Japan was really high. We were gone most of the time. Things like four section watches were didn't exist. <laughs> there, there were a lot of things that they were on the cusp of trying. Like when we pull into port, they would have a couple ships tie up and share certain watch sections. You could dilute it, but it was mostly, you just live for watch and signing papers in between, just constantly busy. It wasn't for me. I determined that I had a blast, made some lifelong friends and experiences. I mean, really irreplaceable. I wanted to get back to the Marine. I did uh, apply for position with uh, First Anglico out of Camp Pendleton. Everyone on the ship, my uh, from the uh, XO to the CO thought it was a mistake. So I pulled in first the XO's office. I don't know if you've seen this, but we just got your orders and I think there's been a mistake. It's a not a career killer, but it certainly wasn't a typical career progression to go to work for the Marines as a naval gunfire liaison. So I told them, no, that's not a mistake. This is, uh, this is what I want to do. And yeah, I did that for two years and then instructed fire support, tactical air control, uh, naval gunfire bombardment for two years after that uh, down in Coronado. So I ended my last four years with the Marines and you know, kind of, uh, uh, scratch that itch, let, let's say. I had a blast. I think another thing you and I both experienced was the electrical engineering exam that occurred when we were both seniors. Maybe you can tell the audience, if they're not aware of this, kind of what was going on. I think they did get to the bottom of it eventually. To start the story, it was like we, everyone was kind of in the dark at first, in particular, uh, what happened. Uh, essentially, a copy of the electrical engineering exam, <clears throat> the second, well, it would have been the first, end of the first semester exam, right, was somehow uh, taken out of the electrical engineering office. Uh, copies were made and were sold. And I can't remember the Nexus who exactly uh, took it out of there, but it started making its way around the Naval Academy. In the end, maybe a couple hundred sets of eyes or, or more um, were put on that exam, you know, to varying, uh, varying levels. Uh, some people intimately involved in distributing it and selling it. And uh, <clears throat> once this became apparent, you know, the brigade honor uh, committee, and I was a battalion honor rep at the time, and you were higher up, you know, we kind of just was, <laughs> I hate to say dumped in our lap. It, it was a major, looking back, a major, major uh, investigation into dozens at that time, but really hundreds of people, it became apparent. And um, I felt like almost powerless, like a uh, like a police officer without any arrest powers or any ability to subpoena. I think the vast majority of us had cases assigned. There were enough at that time, but it's a very frustrating experience because it was completely stonewalled. The honor uh, boards, when they were conducted, were were just kind of rushed through. I didn't feel like uh, we even kind of hit the tip of the iceberg, saw the tip of the iceberg at the time. You know more about the full scope of it than, than I did um, at the time or after. 
it was really a mess. And I think one of the things that perhaps the new honor code that's in place today would have prevented is the first two people who came forward, who were both at the top of their class, both had A's in the class, regardless of their exam, came forward and said, we got a duplicate of the exam. And when the superintendent kicked both of them out, I thought it said, a just horrible precedent because at that point, instead of people coming forward, everyone kind of entrenched in today's world. When Admiral Carter was there, he changed it so that now there's more latitude in trying to teach people the correct lesson. Not that cheating is ever right, but two people who actively come and report it should have been the last ones to probably have gotten kicked out of this thing. Fortunately, what really made the boards extremely difficult was that the star witness was a football player. He had gotten the exam from a petty officer, and that petty officer went MIA shortly before all these went underway. And so what ended up happening was that football player changed his complete story that he had been telling NCIS. So when we got into all these boards, it was basically, I have no idea what NCIS is saying. I don't know how this exam originated. So it really created a lot of doubt if you were sitting there listening to this when there shouldn't have been any at all. And the other thing was there were actually hundreds and hundreds towards the end thought it could be over half that class who had gotten access to this. So when you think about that many people who themselves were in the same position as the person that they're evaluating when they're on these boards, it's not surprising to me some of the impact that it had. But I think the most disturbing thing for me was that all the football players who were found to be guilty, let off, and all the other people were, were terminated. So lots of lessons learned from that whole thing. Like I said, unless the culture is right, or doing the right thing in that case, you know, was the right thing, but the act ended up being the, you know, having the worst uh, consequences for the people. It's complicated, very complicated issue. Yes. So you graduated with an English literature degree, which I'm sure at the time you would never have thought that you would have put to use as much as you are today. When in your career did you make this decision that it was going to be writing that you wanted to pursue and that was really your passion? Oh, it was quite, I want to say quite by accident. It sort of developed over time. I go to a lot of uh, writing conferences, a lot of authors, and you know, you meet all, a lot of different types of authors. The one type I don't really meet all very often is someone like myself really started this. Not that people haven't started this later in life, but almost all of them have had this long-term desire and quote stories like my mother gave me an essay I wrote in third grade saying I was going to be a famous author. And, and those are like, I say touchy-feely. They warm your heart when people who want to do something forever get to do what they want to do for a living. That There's nothing more amazing than that. So I got out of the Navy. I went to work for Pfizer as a sales rep, basically. I kind of lucked into the job. I say lucked into it because they're fantastic, fantastic jobs if you can get them, especially if you uh, have a brand new family, which I did at the time. So I did that for 12 years. And I would say about eight years into that, we kept the company went through a number of layoffs. By the time I did leave, I had had five different managers in like six years. And you know, it was just getting tiresome every year waiting around on the phone for the, the call. You know, we'll call you if you have a with your fate, basically. <laughs> um, and they expect you to be out selling drugs while that call is coming in. When that started, I just kind of got this bug to start writing a story I'd been thinking about. It didn't start out as a pandemic story, but it ended up being a pandemic story. You can kind of see behind me, the Jakarta pandemic was my first book. It took about, I'd say from start to finish, three years. I did a lot of research into pandemics and 
I wanted to create a story just based in the neighborhood. And there's no helicopter chases. There's no CDC scientists uh, hanging off the skid of a helicopter and uh, dropping into a hot zone or anything like that. It's really just about a pharmaceutical rep. So I didn't go straight too far from home in terms of what I knew. Who was former military and who's kind of a little bit of an obsessed prepper. How would you survive a, a pandemic that's, uh, let's say, like what we saw in New York City in March of 2020? Like imagine if that just kept going and that happened everywhere and, it, and there were just no let up. You could imagine a breakdown of society. And that's really what I wanted to imagine. In that. Do you have a topic like today's that you would like to see us cover. You can reach us at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. Keep your emails concise. Use a descriptive subject line. That keeps things easy for us. Reach out to us if there's a topic you're interested in learning about. There's something that maybe you're going through, any big decision that you're wrestling with, or perhaps you just want a new perspective on work, love, or life. Whatever's got you staying up at night, hit us up at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. We're here to help and we keep every email anonymous. Now, back to Passionstruck. Yeah, and in that book, didn't you call it like, I've read it like H16N1 or? Uh, I think it was H16N1. I mean, I was H- looking at yes. it. It's probably already been <laughs> out there. <laughs> I was looking for a new one. I guess I didn't really answer your question. This just developed and I enjoyed it so much. Looked into like publishing. Do I get an agent? What do I try to do? Self-publishing had kind of come into, it it was kind of sort of the beginning of the golden age of self-publishing with a lot of different platforms. Uh, Nook, um, the one I'm exclusive of now at Amazon, uh, Kindle Direct Publishing. Instead of waiting, instead of putting this in a drawer where no one may, you know, no one may ever see it because it takes a long time to, and you may never find an agent. And then the agent may never be able to sell the book. So I uh, self-published it. It started selling. I was like, once I got past the, the count of uh, relatives and friends that would buy it, actual real people are buying this book. So um, that kind of just that built for a year. And then I started writing um, a second one, which was the Black Flag series, which was kind of what I always wanted to write. If I were to write, it would be um, like kind of a Black Ops uh, espionage series. Let's just talk about the Jakarta pandemic just for a couple minutes, because I remember it was December leading up to COVID and you and I were having a conversation and I think several of our classmates were around this. And at that point, it was kind of right when COVID was being announced in China. And I remember you telling me, and this is three plus months before the lockdown occurred, that a lockdown is coming start prepping, start getting your supplies together. And I remember as we got into end of January, February, starting to tell my friends this and my family members and everyone looked at me like I was nuts. And I remember towards the end of February, I was out with my girlfriend and I said, Hey, Corey, we better suck this night in because it's going to be the last time we're going to be going out for a very long time. And she's like, you keep saying this, but it's never going to happen. Like two weeks later, it happened. I mean, what you had in the book was a worser case scenario, but it so much of what you wrote about years before has proven to be very accurate, as well as how different nations have handled this. It was pretty creepy to see um, COVID unfold as compared to the virus I created for a suspense novel. I ratcheted up every angle and aspect, speed at which society collapses and um, the lethality of the virus 
all the different, I basically created a designer virus, I, I always call it, um, where I'm like, what would be the worst characteristics? And um, as the data started coming out of China, when they locked down the entire Wuhan province, 70 to 100 million people, you don't do that for a flu. You really just don't do that for anything we've seen. I mean, maybe they would have in hindsight for SARS, but SARS burned out pretty quickly. They knew how to handle it. It was, it was a nasty bug, but yeah, something about that really bothered me. I always kind of talk with a few people. Um, I wouldn't call them preppers. We keep in touch with this, you know, about this kind of stuff. And we, all at once, we're like, hey, are you seeing this? Now I'm hearing about an asymptomatic period. Thinking back, I'm like, that's exactly how I designed this virus. I'm like, the spread um, long asymptomatic period, highly contagious. The only thing I changed was obviously uh, the lethality of the virus. But I felt like you did. You know, I felt like... Um, People looked at me like you're like not crying. I've never cried wolf before about these kinds of things, but it was just harder even for myself to conceive of at that point. I didn't do, I would have, if in hindsight now, I would have been yelling from the trees, uh, top of the trees in early February or mid-February instead of really, I really started getting out on the public platform more toward the end of February and early March. And that by that time. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, we at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now back to passion struck. It was without a doubt here. So everywhere. And it's so ironic how different the containment strategies are in the United States versus China. You just lock down a city the size of Shanghai with no warning at all and keep people sequestered to their residencies for weeks on end. But with limited supplies, yeah. <laughs> or no supplies. Since then, you've written 19 books. I'm going to hold up the most recent one here. Uh, so the audience who's watching can see this. This is called Deep Sleep. It's a great read for any of you who want to pick it up. And it was the number one best-selling book on Amazon and has over 12,000 reviews. So nicely done. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a great... Uh, yeah, this, this one's done well. So how do you go about writing a thriller like this? Because as I'm reading this, there's not only aspects of the storyline, but there's 
research that has to be done to go along with it, especially when you're writing about foreign nations or military operations. How do you go about writing a book like this? <laughs> I just sit down and it just comes to me. No, it doesn't, not at all. Now, this is an idea I've had for quite a while. The concept of, um, not to give too much away, um, I, mean, I think it's pretty obvious it's about uh, a Russian sleeper network. Anytime I approach a novel um, in any of my series, I, you know, I'm like, I don't want to do what's already been done. It's kind of hard not to do that because there's always elements. The Charm School is one of my favorite novels. There are elements of that in there. The uh, series, The American, I, I love that series. Um, there, all these things fire off ideas, but I want this to be different. So I had to think of something bigger. I just kind of sometimes just go bigger. I go with a more extensive conspiracy. It's not... 10 sleepers or the eight sleepers, or I don't even know if they would call them sleepers, more like spies that they uncovered. I remember like 15, 20 years ago, it was a big FBI sting. Um, but the traditional sleeper network, but something just extensive. The first idea of this, have you ever heard of number stations, those mysterious? Um... No, I haven't. Okay, so the beginning of this idea, um, number stations are long range frequency transmissions that. Um, some of them originate out of Russia. They pop up here and there throughout the world. And they're like super, like, they're like, you know, very low frequency. So very long range. And they're just numbers. They're just like repeated strings of numbers. Some of them broadcast con continuously. Others come on and off. No one has ever been able to figure out what these numbers are. Um, the suspicion being that they're codes. And um, if the code changes or um, if there, yeah, if there's a variation in the code, then it could activate a, a network somewhere. So that's how it started. And, and then I just, it just kind of snowballed from there. But in terms of the research, I take a lot of liberty with the stuff that's done um, in the books. I don't try to Tom Clancy it to death with research. I do most of the research through reading articles and Google. I have, at any given moment, I'll have a um, bookmarked folder with a couple hundred articles that I've read on various topics. I voraciously devour anything that comes across my desk. Uh, my wife always, she's always sending me stuff. It's amazing how things will fit in. The smallest details um, will be will be found by that. Once this idea kind of comes together, I just start very rough plotting, rough ideas and throwing them out. Um, my wife is, I would say she's my original uh, ideas editor and she does some developmental editing. Um, I also uh, belong to a, um, a group we, we call Mountainside Retreat. It's um, a group of authors that gets together once or twice a year and we uh, workshop we call salons. So we sit around and it's your turn. And for a couple hours, you can do multiple ideas or one. And we just really just tear these things apart. And I saloned, let's call it this idea, um, geez, before COVID. So it was, um, it was October, 2019. And the idea was totally different then, you know, completely different than what it is now um, in terms of like my idea of like how the action was going to flow and how it proceed. So um yeah, it's just kind of this very long process that, you know, in this case came together. I felt happy, very happy when it came together because I knew it was an ambitious. The uh, conspiracy in the book is ambitious and um, I kind of leave you hanging at the end. Um, and that was another risk to this book. They don't, no one publishes Tom Clancy sized novels anymore, unless you're, unless you're writing for Tom Clancy, <laughs> you know, writing for his estate. I do have limitations in terms of how long a book can be. Instead of just trying to wrap up something and have a book too, I just really kind of sort of cut it at a, what I consider a logical point, but it's definitely, there's going to, I got some angry emails. So there's a lot of people waiting for October to, to get their hands on the second one. So that's a good thing in a way. Yeah. And speaking of what you're writing right now, I saw on Facebook that you were offering up to your fans that they could actually 
read the book as you write it. Right, right. And I was hoping you could tell the audience about that because I thought that was a pretty cool concept. Sure. It was, um, so it's not an original concept. A number of other authors have done it. I just haven't been in a position to do that because all my books through my Thomas and Mercer, my publisher, I don't have that kind of, I can't release material. I, I'm allowed to release a certain percentage for promotional use and, and marketing, but certainly not an entire book uh, chapter by chapter, essentially as I write it. I say as I write, I'm, you know, I have 24, 20, 26 chapters written, and I've, I think I've released eight at this point. Um, so I'm catching up. So it's a good motivator because I, I, I feel the fire coming up behind. It's getting hot behind me. I got to keep, uh, keep working. Um, but it, yeah, it's been great. I thought, why not let people see kind of this raw input because it's unedited, really. And I write relatively clean. There's plenty of rawness in there. And um, a number of the readers, they, they like to keep track of that stuff and help me. But um, yeah, yeah, it's been a fun experiment. Um, I switched to Substack from MailChimp as my uh, newsletter provider, just because all I really do is send out um, newsletter emails. And uh, MailChimp's a real, it's a heavy marketing platform. Tons of amazing data if you're you know, linking it to stores and stuff, which, which I don't. So when I, I looked into Substack, um, it was very easy to set this up to do... Um, kind of a read as I write and, and kind of separate it, the regular newsletter and then have a, a very nominally paid option. So basically $5 a month, you're going to get the free book in the end, proofed and fully uh, edited. And um, I don't know if I'm going to continue it after that because I won't really have books. I won't have chapter material to give people. Um, I can create other content, which I've done in the past. And I really enjoy doing like the background of the books, background of the story, but it is time consuming and a lot of times when I when I'm faced with everything going on in life and book deadlines, I think if you look at my blog, you'll see I haven't done a on writing post in, in quite a while. So Yeah, well the risk for me, I mean, at least it was when I was writing my book, was I after I got done with it, I probably did forty or fifty changes to it, including doing major movements of chapters from one place to another because I just didn't like the flow. So is that something that might happen here? Or once you start a logical progression, does it typically just keep flowing for you? There have been times where I'm like, I asked my editor jokingly, um, did you have any input for the developmental editor? And, and she's like, you guys work together best. Just uh, and, and I think I do write, I I've just have this sort of a process where there are changes and we will add chapters, take ch cut chapters completely. But in terms of like... Um, I story where you're making these big moves. Like I, your, your book is very different in terms of how you're trying to logically work a reader through to the end. I don't know. I feel like a plot, like a storyline plot, in my view, would be a little easier to do um, than that. You can see your chapters and, and how it's arranged. Um, you could see like, oh, wait, wait I, could, I could move this. If I move this here, it would have more of an impact and set the reader up to, to kind of keep building where the plot I got to keep. <laughs> there aren't too many uh, major shifts or changes. You know, nothing ends up, nothing completely ends the same um, when I start out. I mean, I've very rarely had, usually the ending will be what I had in mind, but how I get there is not, but it's not a drastic shift. If, does that make sense? It makes complete sense, but I think it's a really cool concept and I'm sure your fans are loving the opportunity to get to see inside your mind as you're creating one of these. I like this book so much. I can't wait to read about Devin Gray again in this second one. Right. And there'll be a third. I'm, um, I'll be starting the third in you know, about a month. So um, 
that's uh, that's some you know newer news is my the my publisher did want a third book in that series and um yeah so we'll be doing a third and then i'll be starting something new no one will see until 2024 it's kind of feels crazy but you know publishing is like this you know where you know it could be a year or two before uh you sign on the dotted line it's going to be a while before that book sees the light of day you know but but i'm always working on always working on something so it's um there's never really a, a long break or, or, you know, time off, I would say. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, given how many books you've produced. I couldn't believe it when I looked. They're well over 20. Right. I'm kind of a slow writer, too. And I think in the grand scheme of things, but I've, I've been slowed down by um, by my publisher, which has been great. So my first two series, oh, geez, I would say the first you know, 11, 12 books I wrote um, were self-published. These were just successful series that I kept adding books onto. And then I um, got into talks with um, the publisher I've been with uh, since for, from the beginning. And, um, you know, they, they, they have me under a good deadline, you know, but they uh, allow me a lot more time than I was allowing myself um, before. That's the big difference. Um, so I think part of Part of an answer, going back to answer your question of like, you know, how much changes or how much, you know, redo. And I think by necessity, um, I've honed this process down um, fairly tightly out of sheer necessity because I, my deadlines before would be pretty, pretty harsh. I have some funny stories. I thought I had three more weeks on a on book on uh, the fifth Black Flag book. I'm sitting at a basketball game watching, um, watching our daughter. <laughs> And um, I get a just a quick text from her. She's like, "So on track, to, on track to deliver tomorrow, right?" I'm um, like, "Tomorrow? No, I was thinking I'm like three weeks from now, right?" And she's like, "No, you know." And she sent me the emails that we had exchanged, and I was somehow in my mind at three weeks later. So she gave me one week, and I wrote more in that one week than I think I've ever written before, um, and. I, I absolutely love the way that book turned out. So I've kind of turned into a little bit of a, like a crutch, uh, like a end of deadline writer. My wife hates it because I just literally vanish. I'm out of, out of that. I'm in the house, but I'm out of circulation for a good three to four weeks. So I try to avoid that. And I say that every book, but it has really just never happened. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, a deadline does make you have a end goal that you have to hit, which when you're self-publishing doesn't exist necessarily unless you give it to yourself. But I understand you and I both share a common habit. I get up every single day at 5 a.m. Uh, you may actually beat me up to waking up earlier, but I not is anymore. that something? Not anymore? I get up. Um, that is a habit. That's how I started. I, I started at 4, 4.30. Um, even, when, um, even when I went full-time in 2013, when I finally quit Pfizer and just decided to, this is what I was going to focus on. Um, I did keep getting up really early. It's gone away over time. It hasn't, it, it just hasn't been a, a necessity for me to do it. Um, but when I do get into that deadline crunch, like, you know, we talked about, or I, sometimes I'll just do a power week or two to, you know, if I feel like, you know, something's just not flowing right. I'm like, I'll tell Kasha, I'm like, I'm going to, this next week, I'm just, I need to power through this. I need to get some words, like some serious word count done. And that'll be, uh, I'll get up at four thirty, um, five, and I'll be, you know, eat dinner and hang out. And then I'll go back to it, you know, to, you know, from seven to nine. So 
I do that in like just a little like bursts, you know, to try to keep from having to do that for three week, three to four weeks straight, which can be pretty brutal. Yes. Well, I just started doing it. My productivity wasn't where it needed to be. And I could never get everything that I needed to accomplish done. I still can't, but I am so much sharper at the beginning of the day than I am as the day goes on that I've just learned to put my most important tasks for the day and build those up early. The stuff in the afternoon gets to do things like check emails or do social posts or more mindless things that you just have to do. So I think that uh, honestly, that's the best way to go because I know some writers, they, they write at night, the honest and not, not because they have to, or that's just when they're more productive. I've never found, I've never found myself to be that person. Um, even working for Pfizer, you know, um, trying to do stuff after the kids are in bed. It just, um, I've always been, the more you can get done earlier in the day, the better off you are. I don't always, I'm, I don't always walk that, uh, you know, I don't always follow what I, uh, what I'm saying when it comes to that at all. Cause there are days where I'm like, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, what am I doing? I've done exactly what you said, emails, uh, this and that posts. And, um, it's not a good feeling. So I like to just knock out as much as I can early. Unfortunately, my creative time, I think I've determined is between one and five, which is, is like really, it's kind of con it's contra It doesn't always work out for me. Um, I just, Kasha hates it. She's like, can't you just do it in the morning? And I'm like, I can, but I do feel like I'm, I'm more forcing it through. So I look for like a good two hour period in the afternoon in that, in that creative time. Um, when I, I'll get probably 60%, 70% of my writing done. Um, I set it all up in the morning. So yeah, it works out. I'll have to think about as I'm working on future books, how to best organize it because you you are right. Like when I'm in that writing mode, I kind of have to turn off and silence everything around me. So I'm not getting bothered and you just want hour and a half, two hours of time. Because when you get in that zone, you just want that flow to continue. Right. And I think that's common in workplaces. I know I've read a lot of different things about it. Like there are certain productivity periods. Um, I think I just watched, we just watched a, a video on uh, Fika, which is like the uh, Swedish art of like relaxing, like a, it's like coffee break, but it's based on some kind of actual science, I guess, um, you know, where they, um, you know, they take breaks at strategic times during the morning. You really took an out-of-the-box gamble when you started doing this. Uh, yes, you had a job, but it was still something that you had to put your faith in and take a risk. What would be your advice to a listener who might be, whether it's becoming a writer or just pursuing their purposes, what are some bits of advice that you would give them? I did take what I would call the safe route. I mean, I didn't just um, take off the suit one day and decide I'm going to start writing. I had... Um, you know, I think the, the advice I'd give, and I'm kind of conservative when it comes to this, as evidenced by my approach, is to use your, your off time, um, kind of like try to find a balance. I mean, it's near impossible when you have a full-time job. If your passion is something that you can start um, and really delve into and research and, and sort of build while you're working, while you have that stability, while you have the stability, you know, that was, that was a big thing for me. I remember saying like, once I replace my income for X amount of months, I think it was five, at that point it had been six months that I had essentially replaced my Pfizer income um, with the book income. Now that didn't exactly, you know, factor in health insurance, which is very generous um, there and um, car allowance and that kind of thing. But um, 
you know, uh, Kasha was working, you know, she was an attorney in, in Portland at the time in Maine. So um, it wasn't a really, it wasn't a super, it was risky, but it wasn't like as risky as someone like I can imagine just thinking I'm, I have no idea if this restaurant's going to work. We'll get the restaurant ready and we're going to launch it and I'm going to quit my job. Um, but I mean, doing your, doing your research and just knowing what you're getting into, I mean, is, is huge. Well, I did know that when I went full-time. I mean, I knew, you know, I was pretty hooked into the community. Um, I just felt very confident and certain that that income would continue, um, particularly if I had more time to write and get more books out, which I did. Um, so I think that research into, you know, what you're getting into and the risks, which were that maybe the books wouldn't make money. Maybe the money that we saw before would kind of trickle away. My next series wouldn't do that well. Yeah, my Kasha was not exactly the happiest camper. My quitting uh, occurred over a lunch in Panera that you know, I can still remember to this day. And it was very obvious that my heart was not in that Pfizer job at all. You know, you, you could just, you could probably just tell um, during field rides with my manager. And that's, that's when this occurred. But also in the numbers, you know, my sales call numbers, um, things like that. Um, it wasn't that I was, you know, the time was being spent there, you know, on the books. It was just that I, you know, it was... I just wanted to get home and write, you know, write or research more and do things like that. Um, I, I just couldn't wait to get out of the field as a, as a sales rep. So, yeah. So she, uh, you know, essentially over a lunch was like, you know, let, we need to have a talk about your, you know, you know, if you want to be here and this and that. And I said, I literally just like, I'll save you the trouble of any speech, you know, not, and not being mean about it. I'm like, I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, essentially I quit, you know, I, I just, I want to write and that's it. And kind of a little bit of a shock. Uh, <laughs> I don't think she was expecting that answer. Um, then I called my wife and said, hey, I'm done with Pfizer. And I, you know, that's like a, you know, a term like, oh, I'm done with these people. I'm done with, uh, you know, I, I must have said that a thousand times, you know, in the last four years with all the different changes. And she's like, oh, what do they do now? I'm like, no, actually, I'm done with them. And she's like, you, 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 you just quit? I'm like, yeah. She's like, can you undo that? And I'm like, I don't think so. And I don't want to. <laughs> So I hadn't really consulted her, even though we had talked about it, you know, a lot of, you know, enough, but I, there was no, like, I am doing this tomorrow. Um, so that was a little bit impulsive on my part. Um, and looking back, I would have probably maybe done it a little differently, but I just felt I had to pull the trigger. It was, you know, and then it was just the right emotional um, climate, you know, every, everything just came together at that one time. And I'm like, I just, this is the excuse I've been looking for sort of for a while. Um, and I didn't want to do both. I just wanted to write full time and, and explore that. Well, I think that's a good backdrop for people to understand the reality of the situation. And for everyone, it's going to be different. And also your risk tolerance and family situations are, are going to be different. I did want to ask you, were there any authors or books that have really inspired you to become the writer that you are today? I am... Um... That's a good question. I've read, I mean, all the typical, I mean, the site, like people like Stephen King, I read a lot of, you know, I read pretty voraciously in a lot of different genres um, growing up. Tom Clancy, Stephen King, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Jeffrey Deaver, Frederick Forsyth is another one. You know, I read a lot. Jack Higgins, who recently passed away. You know, I read pretty, very extensively Nelson DeMille, a lot of espionage stuff, um, but also like Michael Crichton. I love the science fiction, kind of like that, um, you know, more uh, not space or Star Wars. I love that too. But in terms of reading, you know, that kind of really realistic sort of gritty Crichton-esque um, science novel, um, those were always 
uh, some of my favorites. Um, Stephen King has a, had a book he wrote on what it's called. Um, it has a lot of old advice about like finding an agent and mentions like things like, you know, looking a newspaper, <laughs> like some old, but, but his real, like um, his, his advice on writing and sticking with it. Those were pretty instrumental. He's like, you just have to show up every day. And um, he said the one lie he told was, I think in a, with a reporter that asked him if he took time off on Christmas or on like the, on, on his kids' birthdays for writing. And he said, yes, because it was a lie. Essentially, he, um, he always did some writing and keeps it going. And that's, that is what I do today. You know, you know, Kyle, I'll tell Kasha, I just got to go up and even in between books, I got to work on something, the next synopsis, the next, uh, just write a chapter of what I think might be in the next book, just something to keep, just to keep it going. If you ever want to write an episode for me, <laughs> one of my Momentum Friday episodes, I'd, I'd welcome the input. <laughs> uh, I don't think people understand how much work it takes to write a keynote speech every single week and then have to deliver it, especially when you're talking, having to do 20 minutes to 25 minutes. That's so self Right. I mean, you're, you're actually, you're, then you're delivering it. It's not, uh, you're not writing it and just handing it off and yeah. Go ahead and read it. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I wanted to really ask you about, because I'm sure there are listeners out there who may be authors themselves, is now you've got the self-publishing world, you've got this growing hybrid model where I've kind of found my lane, and then the traditional publishing in it, at least for me, and I'm sure it's much easier for you now that you've had so many books written, but the having to write and respond to all the query process and then reach out to the agents is exhausting, especially when 100% of them turn you down. In today's publishing world, it's different for fiction and nonfiction, but it has radically changed, I think, over the past five, six years and then with COVID. So what would be some of your advice to an aspiring writer out there who's trying to get published one way or another? You're absolutely right. It's a number. It's a statistics game in terms of, you can imagine an agent who gets hundreds of queries a week, depending on what they rep, maybe less for nonfiction. I have no idea. You know, I know fiction agents are inundated. They just have piles and piles of query letters with samples and stuff like that. And your the likelihood of your uh, query letter even being seen, it is, like I said, it's just, it's like the numbers get thinner and thinner as you go beyond, like I said earlier, finding an agent one, uh, then even have, then people don't realize the agent has to sell the book which is a whole nother process. So um, the only advice I could really give is um, networking is one. It's hard. I do get, I get a ton of emails and I try to help out as much as I can within reason. I'm always open to helping out um, other indie publisher, indie authors who have a pretty proven track record. You can look at their catalog and see they've done reasonably well as indies. Um, but I've also helped people who just have not published books um, before. Networking is tough. It's um reaching out cold, just really cold emailing, you know, an author with a pitch, a proposal to get some kind of help or a blurb for the book or, or whatever it is. So it's hard. Um, but I, I will say that my, me taking the next step and finding a publisher was all about having a, a good self-published catalog, having built somewhat of a, rep, I, I hate to use a reputation. It sounds like I had a reputation, um, <laughs> but it did help because, you know, then when, you know, I did catch a few people's eyes, um, my current publisher, you know, had been looking at me and I didn't know that. And then when I started talking with some other authors and I'm very shy about asking for help, to be quite honest, you know, my wife hates it. Um, and I've had other people like, just ask, you know, I'm like, I, I really feel all weird doing it, but 
once you do, like, you know, it's surprising, you know, having a, having that background, having some success, people have helped me get to the next level. I mean, there's, there's absolutely, I have names in my head right now. I'm not going to rattle them off, but without them taking that next step would have been very difficult. So networking constructively, and you know what I mean by that, I'm sure, you know, there's people yes. who send emails out, you know, and then names misspelled or you know, like, Hey, you know, I, I, I get those a lot. Would you look at this book and give me a review? Like, I've never even heard you. I don't even know who you are. And um, so constructive networking, uh, attending conferences is another thing. So I don't know if there's nonfiction conferences, um, but there definitely are fiction conferences. Authors attend, readers, and there, a lot of them are broken up by uh, genre. So I go to a couple mystery, thriller, suspense, uh, writers' conferences, and um, there's they exist for every genre out there, every type of book. So just meeting people, like I said, in a constructive way, you know, and they remember you. I think that's getting some FaceTime, you know, is, is really important. I completely agree with that. I have just found for me, the industry has just changed from really wanting a quality product to wanting someone who's got a social following. Right. And I learned that the hard way. I, I went to one of the big four publishers, a classmate of ours, Jeff Eggers, actually uh, introduced me to his publisher. And they said, your book is outstanding. It's actually one of the better ones we've read. Unfortunately, we cannot publish it. I said, why? And they go, well, Jeff published his book with General McChrystal. And unfortunately, you're not General McChrystal. In fact, you don't have any of the platform close to that it's going to take to sell this. So that really launched me into rethinking my whole approach. And it's actually why I started the podcast and everything else. When you go into this, you don't really have a personal brand. You've developed yours through writing all these books, but that's a whole foundational part of whether you're going to publish through a traditional one or, or not. Because if you don't have a following, Amazon makes it easier to find books, but generally a lot of people want to hear from the author who's writing it and someone that they see out there. It's time consuming, but it's fun. It can be a lot of fun. I love the, you know, like doing this, this is great. Just having a chat and uh, talking about things um, book related and career related is awesome, but yeah, keeping up with it is, um, and it is definitely, like you said, it's sort of expected in the uh, fiction world as well, but um, having some sort of a platform and how do you do that? I think you've hit the right balance in terms of having something of, of really good value for people other than just posting, uh, like there's a lot, I see a lot of different, you know, stuff on Facebook and wherever, or, you know, here's what I had for lunch. Here's my new vacation. And I've really pulled back over the years, which is why I've, I've really been enjoying the Substack idea, not to give like too much away because I haven't really formulated an idea, but I'm, I'm really just thinking of you know, just trying to kind of compact it into that more because it is like a newsletter, an online newsletter, essentially for me, um, where I can interact um, instead of through eight different Facebook groups that I, you know, that I'm in, you know, I have a great readers group. Um, we have fun, but it's just hard to keep up with it all. Um, and it is, it's a part-time job. And, and that is just the life of a writer these days until you get to the Stephen King level where you have an assistant uh, sending the sorry, sorry uh, letters out. That's one of my biggest challenges is uh, answering emails and keeping up with what's going on in uh, Facebook. I do a lot of apologizing. Sorry. When I, I think I have a template called sorry for my tardy reply. And I think you, you, you may have seen one of those. At some point. A week ago, as I was thinking about this interview, I was watching the new Kingsman movie and I was wondering 
when are you going to take your books and put them on the silver screen? I wish it was that easy. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not. Um, yeah, no, I, um, you know, we've had some bites, but I think right now I do not have an agent. I am unagented. I just, the way my career has kind of uh, evolved. I developed this relationship with my publisher, which is kind of unusual without an agent, but just kind of worked out a, a confluence of events, people helping me, um, bringing my name to them. I was made an offer when I did not have an agent. I have a relationship with them that I can pitch them books anytime. It's hard to describe, but so from the book aspect, yeah, things are great. I can consist constantly pitch you know, ideas and, and things to them, but Without an agent, it's very difficult to break into the TV, movie, any kind of deals like that. You really do need an agent. So I think those are next steps in terms of career. You know, I'm looking down the line at if I want something like that to happen, I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to have to sign with an agent, which that may be the absolute right move for me at that point. I may have a more of a standalone book that I want to try to sell um, or whatever it might be. But, you know, right now I'm just 100% happy with my publisher. So there just doesn't seem to be any reason to, uh, to go that route. And you know how the, and the movie stuff, I mean, if you know what I know, talking to other authors, it's, there's always bites, there's nibbles, very few people actually reel a fish up uh, for many of those bites. So it's, it, it's definitely long shot world, but, um, but it can be really cool pay off. Well, then there's also the studio's creative liberty to change up your book as well. <laughs> that would be afraid of that. But you do i mean sometimes you just you you do lose that creative control i have a good friend he's brilliant uh, his books are brilliant and he's really um made a name for himself as a screenplay writer so he's just got this great fortune where projects that are optioned and then go into production he's right in there it's like when these come out i've seen a couple of them already one more so than the other was just so faithful to the characters and, and the, uh, the original book. And I, I can only imagine the uh, couple projects he has moving forward of his, his very successful novels are going to be the same way, which is, I love that more than anything. It's hard to read a book, get excited about a series or a concept. And then what you see on Netflix or Apple plus is like, Oh man, that's a, that's a bit of a letdown. It's hard. I did want to give you the opportunity uh, in case the audience wants to get access to you, subscribe to your newsletter, learn more about your books and announcements. What are some ways that they can do that? You could definitely find me at stephenconkley.com. The uh, last name's spelled K-O-N-K-O-L-Y. It's a very unusual one. But yeah, everything is there. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter. You'll get hit with a pop-up. I apologize in advance for that. Um, asking if you want to do that. So if you want to, if you want to uh, keep up with, um, you know, exactly what I'm doing, uh, when things are released, you can do that, but everything makes it there, its way there eventually. So I think that's, that's the best one-stop, uh, you know, shop to find out what I'm doing. Okay. And then your next book will be publishing at the end of October. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, um, coming dawn. So we have a theme going deep sleep, coming dawn and wide awake. Um, we kind of uh, settled on that for this um, Devin Gray series that comes out October 25th. Um, and if we have time for a very quick story, I had to, this is one book I did have to rewrite a lot um, because of the uh, war in Ukraine. Um, it became very obvious to me um, at a certain point that um, the ending of this book and the buildup and sort of, sort of the central plot um, would not be appropriate given what 
you know, what has transpired there, you know, in the war, just, um, it would be pretty, it would be distasteful, um, not, you know, give too much away, but, you know, the, the book ended with a soft coup invasion of Ukraine. Um, so we had to switch. It was, I generated this, I, I was very concerned in early February and kind of reached out and like, maybe we could switch it to another country. <laughs> Sorry, Estonia, you know, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you're in the cross, you're at crosshairs now, but, um, yeah, so I, that's one of the few books where I had to make some major modifications, um, you know, and they were great about it. They agreed. Um, and we just scoured the book and, you know, just made it, made it, made a change that keeps it, um, tactful. I mean, for, for a lack of a better word, I just, I couldn't imagine that book coming out in October. We have no idea what's going to happen there, what it's going to look like. Um, and even with what's already happened there, um, I just didn't feel comfortable putting Ukraine in the crosshairs in my book. So, um, yeah, kind of an interesting, yeah, that, that's a behind the scenes story. I haven't really, uh, I haven't really talked about much. I kind of hinted that we had a big change and thank my publisher for, for really being on board with it. You know, they were, they were awesome throughout that whole process, but, you know, spent a whole week rewriting that I hadn't expected. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read it in October. Well, awesome. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It was great to have you. And I always love it when I have a friend and classmate on the show. Yeah, no, it's great. Great to see you. I mean, I think the last time we saw each other was at our last reunion in terms of like actually live talking. Um, and, and it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for having me on. And, um, you know, anytime. I'm, yeah, no problem talking about books and what's going on. So thank you. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the show. And a big thank you to Stephen Conkley. And all things Stephen will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles. Please go there and subscribe. And our advertisers' deals and discount codes are all in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show and make it free for our listeners. I am at John R. Miles at both Twitter and Instagram, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. If you want to know how I book all these amazing guests, it's because of my network. Build those relationships before you need them. Most of the guests that you hear on the show actually subscribe to the podcast and give us recommendations for both guests and topics. So please come join us. You'll be in some amazing company. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast with Professor Sarah C. Mednick, who is a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of The Hidden Power of the Downstate and Take a Nap, Change Your Life. She is passionate about understanding how the brain works through her research into sleep and the autonomic nervous system. We emphasize the upstate and we don't emphasize the importance of the recovery. So how can we bring more of this kind of recovery time during the day? Because I think our culture is designed to sort of start the hustle in the morning and then just ramp it up all day long. So at the end of the day, people are frazzled. They're not just exhausted, but I think they're frazzled. Remember, we rise by lifting others. So share the show with those you love. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with somebody who could use this daily dose of inspiration. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. Remember, live life passion struck.